to the Big Puff Podcast, coming to you from the shadow of the bomb, Quebec, Canada. My name is Lex, and my co-host is Beach. What's up, Beach? Hey, man. What's going on? I just uh, went through our first geoengineered uh, snowstorm. Mm-hmm. The first of the fall. Lovely. A little early, you know. Definitely got that right. October still. Not cool. Not cool. Uh, gonna celebrate the fakest of all holidays coming up uh, for my kids. Hallow's Eve. Yeah, yeah, kind of anti-holiday. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm getting my uh, autumn, uh, my fall sports fix in. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, man. It's a good season, right? The fall classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do we got? Hockey starting up, NHL, NBA, NFL, of course. Mm-hmm. Other sports uh, like tennis as well, all year round. It's the best time. And perfect timing. We have the perfect guest on tonight to talk about your sports fix and the fixing of sports. The one and only Brian Tui. Welcome to the Big Puff Conversation, Brian Tui. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, guys. Right on. So Brian Tui is an investigative journalist from Wisconsin, I believe. Is that right, Brian? Correct. Okay. And your website is called thefixesin.net. Exactly. And you have several books on sports i think you're probably uh most well known for the fixes in also the fix is still in we've read both of those we've done a couple episodes where we did book reviews of those two books they're pretty popular Uh, i've also read portions of uh, larceny games and you're not just a sports journalist though you've also got a book called disaster government national emergencies continuity of government and you now, I have not yes. read that book, but I hope that we can get into that at some point tonight. We don't need to stick to sports the whole time. All right. So um, I like just the subtitle of your first book, The Fix is In, says a lot, actually. It says, the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. And so when you say the showbiz, you're highlighting a couple things there. Number one, these sports leagues are businesses right big business in fact and i think a lot of people they tend to forget the fact that it is a business it's it's profit driven right they're they're selling competition they're selling storylines but more importantly they're selling entertainment which is why it's not just business it's show business exactly my man you know it's interesting because when you mentioned that i kind of had a flashback to when the book was published or in works to being published and we had a big debate over what to title it. And mm. uh, because, you know, that whole last part of the show biz manipulations of blah, 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 blah. That's a long title, you know, and I had the fixes in as a title. I had that, but they were like, we need more. We need some sort of like subtitle for it. And it was kind of a battle with the publisher to come to that finalization of what it was. And I think that best describes what I talk about because it is, like you said, it's a business. It's a multi-billion dollar business, which a lot of people overlook. And their business is technically show business. And mm-hmm. so I think it was a proper title. It took a while to get there when we were working on it. But I think it really sums up the whole aspect of what the book is about. A hundred percent. When I read your work, I, I just keep thinking over and over about pro wrestling, WWE, yeah. WWF. Right. And when I, I first encountered your work in the last couple years, you were a guest on on a podcast and that led me to buy some of your books and it was perfect. Wow, wait, the podcast actually led to somebody buying a book that, that alone is big news. Yeah, man. <laughs> As an author, that's, I mean, that's something. Cause you know, 
it's funny because I've done, I don't even know. I mean, it's over 200 different like radio shows and podcasts and blah, blah, blah. And you have, as an author, you have zero idea of how effective any of it is. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you just, I, I've never passed one up. I've done all sorts of, I've done some weird, crazy interviews and you have no idea who's listening or who they're connected to or where it leads. But it's just funny when you say that, that it's like, oh, I went out and bought a book. It's like, oh my God, it works. It actually does work. <laughs> it definitely does work. And I hope, I hope you get a few more sales after tonight's episode too. I think I first just, uh, heard you on the tinfoil hat podcast. And that okay. was a great episode. And that led me to buy a bunch of your books. And the timing was perfect because um, like we're from Quebec, Canada, right? Just outside of Montreal. And Montreal and Quebec is a cult when it comes to the Montreal Canadiens, right? The NHL. It is, people say it's a religion here, but really it's a cult. And I was part of that cult growing up and even yeah. in adulthood as well. Go Habs, go. Go Habs, go. But in the last few years, especially during the scandemic, I was I became very disillusioned with um, the NHL, the Montreal Canadiens, and pro sports in 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 general. A couple of things that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way during the scandemic was that um, when we were all in lockdown, the NHL players were allowed to fly around the countries and play in empty arenas while kids couldn't play little league hockey. They could yeah. go to restaurants when we couldn't go to restaurants. And I'm watching these games where the uh, the stands are empty but they're pumping in for the TV broadcast. They're pumping in the audio of tens of thousands of fans. Right. And I just, I just, I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, what is this? And I can't take these people seriously anymore. They're marketed to us as, as heroes, as gladiators, as role models. And I just, they, they fell off their pedestal big time in the last few years for me. And the, the final nail in the coffin, Brian, in a Montreal context was during these, this heavy, um, vaccination campaign that they ran in Quebec, the Quebec government partnered up with the Montreal Canadiens and they were doing these like meet and greets with the stars of the Habs to entice children to go to the Bell Centre and get their jab and then get an autographed jersey at the same time. And they did that a couple of times. And when they did that, I was like, that's it. I'm done with you monsters. You know what I mean? Yeah, it seems like a lot of people who come around to my way of thinking on sports have a moment where things break for them. And mm. like you said, it kind of breaks, it, they become disillusioned. It's like all of a sudden they have a, a wake up moment where it's like, oh, wow, what, what have I been watching? What is it that I've been consuming as a passionate fan of whatever it is? Because I live in Wisconsin where the Green Bay Packers are probably much like the Canadians. It's like a cult. I mean, you literally, when the Packers lose, you could feel like the whole state like deflate. You could feel like the depression set in across the entire state, which is why living here, I always rooted for the Packers to lose. And I still do because it, I'm hoping that one day it'll wake them up out of this. And I think the Jordan Love era is really waking them up out of this more than anything else. But that's what you need. I mean, you, I really, I, cause I don't ask people to stop watching. That's not my intent. My intent is basically to have them look at this in a completely different light, to take their fan hat off and really examine what it is they're consuming when they watch any one of these games, any one of these sports. Because Mm -hmm. I think if you do that, if you start thinking about that, this is entertainment. And because it is entertainment, it doesn't mean that it's actually a legitimate sporting competition that, like you mentioned earlier, it's really on the exact same level as professional wrestling. And when you realize that a league like the NHL, like the NFL, NBA, all of them can legally 
manipulate their own games, legally fix their own games with zero, you know, laws being broken when they do so. And then you look at some of these calls that are made, you look at some of the plays that happen, you look at some of the outcomes that are supposedly coincidence, but yet benefit the league, benefit certain storylines. And you kind of put it all together. You have to come to this conclusion and realize, well, what I'm watching is kind of a fraud. It's not really real. Mm -hmm. It's another facet of reality television. It's just one that will not relinquish that idea that it's real. It won't let the fans in on the secret. But I think if enough fans, you know, start waking up, they realize what the secret really is, that this is all kind of manipulated entertainment. Yeah, very well said. And they're still athletes, but they're they're performers, they're actors yeah. at the same time, right? They're, yeah, they're, they're, it's like a, it's like seeing a circus or a ballet or even a music concert. I mean, they're all performing for you. And you can hear, I mean, there's plenty of quotes out there. And it's, I mean, there's a multitude of, multitude of athletes who've said it, that they are entertainers and they realize this is entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so again, when you look at that, you take a step back and realize, whoa, they're telling you it's entertainment. They're telling you they are entertainers. They're not saying we're athletes. We're not saying we're necessarily competing. They're saying we're entertaining you. Yeah, that's exactly it. And <clears throat> there's an overlap between uh, sports and politics and media as well, right? Especially when it comes to the sports media, because they are in bed with these major leagues. They are business partners. So you're never going to get the type of investigative journalism that you do from Sports Illustrated or ESPN, because they're not incentivized to do so. In fact, they're disincentivized to look into match fixing or corruption. Oh, totally. I mean, the the thing that really... I think more woke me up than anything to this and really deflated me at the same time was when my book Larceny Games came out, which was back basically 10 years ago. I think it was 2013 it came out. And what I had done for this book is I had gone to the FBI and used the Freedom of Information Act and received every file, and it was well over 400 files, that the FBI had related to basically game fixing. And I combed through them all and through all the redacted stuff and all the information And I wrote this book and it revealed that, you know, Hall of Fame athletes in the NBA, Hall of Fame athletes in the NFL, players in Major League Baseball, you know, basketball, or I already said basketball, college basketball, college football, all these different sports had participated in possibly fixing games or at least shaving points in games. And what happened is after I wrote this book, my publisher, we got, you know, contacted by all these different outlets you know, HBO Sports reached out to us, ESPN reached out to us, Yahoo Sports reached out to us. I had a couple interviews with producers from 60 Minutes Television Show. All these people were interested in the book and all these people were excited to see what information I had found in the FBI files. And then none of them did anything with that information whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Nobody covered the book. Nobody reviewed the book. They acted like it didn't exist. They didn't say this book is terrible. They didn't say this book was great. They just decided we're not going to, even give this guy an ounce of publicity, good or bad, because we don't want people to read this book. And it just kind of shattered the book. I mean, it, you know, I still think it's probably actually the best book I wrote because it's the most definitely 100% factual stuff I could find. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, it's actually one of my least worst selling books because it never got any publicity. Right. You have been featured in some ma- major publications, though, but you know, like yeah. you've, been, you've been in SI, you've been in the New York Post and Vice Sports, and you know, the list goes on. But well, 
it's I, I find you're underrepresented when when you look at the your content and the uniqueness of it. People these these outlets should be clamoring to cover your stuff. Oh yeah, well you know Sports Illustrated was another one. So when Larceny Games came out or was coming out, they had contacted my publisher amongst all these other outlets and said we're going to run an excerpt from this book in their magazine, and then backed out at the last minute and refused to do it. Uh, they got a phone and, call. Huh. And then when I was actually published in Sports Illustrated, I mean, this is an incredibly long story, which I can get into if you really want to, but I'll just give you a quick short version, is I worked, I got information about a fixed Major League Baseball game or potentially a couple of fixed Major League Baseball games, which would have been the first time since basically 1919 that this has happened. So the first time in 100 years that this had happened. And I wound up getting partnered up with... Um, Lance Williams, who had writ co-written the book about Barry Bonds and Balco called Game of Shadows. So, I mean, Lance Williams was a legit reporter, and he worked for a place called the Center for Investigative Reporting. And him and I worked on this article and this investigation for, I don't remember, it was like six or nine months. And then when we finished it, the Center for Investigative Reporting, I mean, that sounds like a pretty you know impressive place, right? <laughs> the Center for Investigative Reporting could not find anybody willing to publish what we had written. We mm -hmm. went to ESPN twice and got rejected by ESPN twice. We went to Sports Illustrated and they hemmed and hawed about it for like literally two months before they finally agreed to publish the article. I mean, we could not find an outlet for this thing. And that's, I mean, they eventually did publish it and run with it. But I mean, it was a battle to get something like that actually published in an American you know, sports outlet. It was mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah, I, I remember the story you're talking about. You got a whole chapter on it in uh, the yeah. fix is still in, and it's a wild story. I can't believe people didn't run with it. It's about childhood friends, right? Who yeah. one becomes a, a pro pitcher, another one becomes his low life gambler, and feelings get hurt, and the low life gambler tries to um, smear the the uh, the reputation of the the Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher by by telling people that he's fixing games. And it just, the, it, it spirals out of control, the whole story. It's yeah. wild. And it, it brings in the NYPD, who seem to be working for Major League Baseball, if I read that correctly. Well, the yeah, the crazy thing was Major League Baseball has a Department of Investigations. And theoretically, in this case, when it was assumed or thought, alleged, whatever word you want to use, that uh -huh. these two guys were fixing games together, it should have gone to the FBI. Because they are responsible for investigating what they call sports bribery, which is basically game fixing, which is all those files I accumulated for uh, Larceny games. And so Major League Baseball should have handed it off to the FBI and then got out of the way and that the FBI should have done its investigation. But that's not what happened. In fact, as far as I could tell, as far as we could tell from researching it, the FBI was never even contacted. But somehow the Major League Baseball Department of Investigations was able to get the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office to literally pull over this gambler's family and hold them at gunpoint on the side of the road until Major League Baseball investigations could arrive on the scene and interrogate the gambler. Now, how that is possible and how that is legal, I still to this day don't know, but uh -huh. that's exactly what happened. I mean, that's how powerful Major League Baseball somehow is, believe it or not. Yeah, I believe it. It is a wild story. And I encourage everybody to to read more about it in your book. I like what you said earlier about how you're not 
um, discourage, you're not trying to discourage people from watching sports. And when I said earlier that I've been disillusioned, I have been, but I still watch sports. Like I don't watch hockey anymore. It makes it better. It does make it better. (laughs) You see it through new eyes, right? Like beach and I are both athletes and we're both, we're, you know, we're avid sports fans, but in the last few years, we watch it for different reasons. Now I still watch it for the athletic performance, you know, first and foremost, that's what I want to see is the athletic excellence. And I watch it for the storylines too. Like I'm a martial artist, so I like watching the UFC, but I have no illusions. I understand that not every fight is fixed, but some are for sure. Right. And that doesn't stop me because the UFC does, they put on a good show. They, they have interesting characters. They, they write good storylines and the athletes are high level. So they, they, they perform on, on fight night. Oh yeah. I mean, and like I say, it's entertainment. I mean, everybody needs a release. And it's funny. I was actually thinking about it this morning. I was reading some like online news and stuff like that. And you hear about, you know, this whole thing in Jerusalem and all this other stuff that's going on in the world. And I had about mm-hmm. 20 minutes of it. I was like, Oh my God, I got to look at something else. <laughs> this is just too depressing and too whacked out, you know, to continue. So I understand, you know, people have to have an escape, whether it's, you know, reading comic books or going to the movies or watching the Kardashians or whatever. For some people it's sports and it's perfectly fine because we all do need an escape from reality sometimes. But again, like I say, what I want them to do is watch it with an active eye and understand what it is they're consuming because there are other ways to spend your time. There's other hobbies you can, you know, undertake. There's other activities you can do besides watching sports and feeding this beast because I think that's the only way that fans can actually change sports and change the games for the better, you know, to get the bad calls, quote unquote, bad calls, like out of the NBA, out of the NFL and these other leagues is stop watching. Because if people stop watching, they're going to have to react in some way. And I think the way they would react is almost putting the reality back into the sport and making it more of a real sport. Interesting. I like that. Yeah. Where the favorite team wins all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, how many times in the NFL can you see, you know, just was it not this past weekend, but the weekend before three teams that, you know, had one win all beat heavy favorites. Mm. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was like, (laughs) there's no reason those three teams should have won. Not maybe one on a fluke, but not all three of them. But that's what you get in the NFL today. It's that mindset of, well, any given Sunday, any team could beat any other team. Really? Because, you know, I've played, you know, you know, recreational softball leagues where certain teams are so good, they're going to pound you every time you play them. Right. And that should be the way in professional sports. Certain teams should just pound you into the dirt because, you know what, they are better. They have better athletes. They're better coached. They play better. They should beat you into the ground. But then those teams lose to, you know, some team, like I said, that has one win. And then you go back and look at the game and you're like, well, what were plays were they running there? What were the referees calling? What was actually going on? And you start to kind of unravel it and you think, well, you know what? That probably actually just wasn't a legitimate game. And so who benefited from it? Who was making out on it? Someone won. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Who benefited? Key Bono, right? I think the first word, the first word I think in the fixes, the fix is still in is money, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like you hit the nail on the head and the first word of the book, right? And then you go in to explain the concept of revenue sharing. And I thought that was super interesting. I don't know if you could maybe just flesh that out a bit to show, to, to, to kind of explain what revenue, what the impact is of revenue sharing on uh, the outcomes of games. Well, it's, 
you know, the big thing, again, if this is a big business, a lot of people think of like the NFL or any of these leagues as like 30 or 32 separate entities. Like there's, you know, 32 separate kingdoms that are fighting for the title. And what revenue sharing kind of shows and proves is that really all these teams are sharing from one giant pie. So like in the NFL, I, I don't even know what the number is anymore. Cause I mean, even though the fix is still in came out, what, like three or four years ago, you know, the TV revenue, the TV contracts have changed, but I mean, the NFL makes something like $12 billion a season and that's split pretty much equally amongst all the teams. So 80% give or take that $12 billion is split equally among the teams. So a team that goes 16 or 17 and all would basically make the same amount of money as a team that went 0 and 17, right? They make the same amount of money. So in many ways, it behooves teams to have certain storylines progress and maybe, you know, overachieve in a way or those Cinderella stories to really happen because everybody's going to make money off of it in the long run. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it behooves a team to tank a game or two to a, you know, Cinderella story because, you know, next year the television contract is renewed and the television networks are going to remember, oh, man, you guys gave us a great story last year that generated all this ad revenue. It made all this extra money for the networks. Guess what? You're going to get a little bit back on the back end as well. And so I think that's what it shows. It shows the revenue, you know, is not that, you know, Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys keep every single dime that they make. No, most of their money is spread out amongst all the teams. And even when you buy stuff, that's the thing that I think is funny. You know, if somebody can hate, you know, the Montreal Canadiens and whatever, love the Boston Bruins, and they go buy a Boston Bruins hat, but guess what? Some of your money's going to the Montreal Canadiens. <laughs> that's what revenue sharing does. No, that's it, right? Uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Nice, man. Yeah, I, my dad was, uh, he used to work in, well, he works in accounting. And uh, I'm talking about back in the 80s, he was playing in some beer league and he was playing with the, the vice president of finance of the Montreal Canadiens. And he told my dad back in the 80s that, the Montreal Canadiens will make, they'll profit more if they go all the way to game seven of the Stanley Cup finals and lose rather than if they win, right? And, you know, bonus payouts and so forth, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, if the league wins, everybody wins. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's mm -hmm. why dynasties are so good. You know, a lot of people think, well, you know, if this was the case, then, you know, the leagues wouldn't want something like, you know, the New England Patriots to dominate for so long, but no, they actually do because dynasties are great because what happens is you create a group of fans who suddenly love this dynasty because everybody loves a winner. They become bandwagon fans and they create another group of fans that absolutely hate the dynasty. But guess what? Both sides watch the games because one side's watching because the team they love is playing and the other side watches because the team they hate is playing. So they want to see them lose while the other side wants to see them win. And it just actually generates more interest, which generates higher ratings, which generates higher ad revenue, which generates more money for everybody involved. So, I mean, there's nothing, there's no, there's no good outcome, you know, in all that. Right after 9-11, the Patriots, their dynasty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I like that section in, in The Fix is Still In, because like you said, in Larceny Games, that's one of your more kind of like evidence-based books which I appreciate. Well, they're all evidence-based. Let's, you know, let's make sure of that. <laughs> they're all evidence-based. They're I all mean, like some of my conclusions that I reach, but they're all based on evidence. I'm not just some quack. 
No, I agree 100%. <laughs> what, what I, where I was going was that in The Fix is Still In, you do have a chapter where you talk about these tragedies that are linked to these sports events like Beach just mentioned. And you say, you say outright, like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to speculate here a little bit, right? I don't have proof for this, but I, but I like that part of your, your writing style as well, where you're not afraid to just throw some wild ideas out there. And you have a whole chapter where you look at like, why is it that the Patriots won the Super Bowl after 9-11 and the Saints won after Hurricane Katrina and Boston strong after the marathon bombing and the list goes on and on. I don't know if you can elaborate on that a bit, that, that theory you have of yours. Well, it's, it's interesting because especially in the era of the hashtags, the hashtag strong, cause you had, like you mentioned, hashtag Boston strong, you had hashtag Houston strong after the hurricane hit Houston a few years ago. You had hashtag Vegas strong after the shooting that happened in Las Vegas at the country concert. Um, and like you said, you had the Saints and Hurricane Katrina, you had the Patriots and 9-11. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, if you don't believe in coincidences, how many times a team has become associated with a specific tragedy or a specific hashtag like that, and then they've won or at least reached the championship game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really weird because there are other tragedies and other storms that have happened and no team became associated with them. And they didn't win. But yet, like you said, Boston Strong happened, hashtag Boston Strong, and both the uh, Boston Red Sox and the Boston Bruins made it to the finals. And I think the Red Sox won the World Series and the Bruins, I think that was the year they lost to the Blackhawks um, Mm. in the Stanley Cup. And the year that Houston Strong happened, you know, the Astros won the World Series, which is the year they were supposedly cheating and stealing signs and banging on garbage cans and all that. But maybe Major League Baseball knew that and let it happen because – it was a great story. And then Vegas, you know, the expansion hockey team, the Golden Knights reached the Stanley Cup finals the year of Vegas strong. And I mean, that was something that nobody expected and probably should have never happened that an expansion team, you know, winds up in the Stanley Cup finals the very first year they're in existence yet. Thanks to hashtag strong and all that, it seemed like it happened. But, you know, you know, ne- I've never seen an instance where that's failed yet, mm. where some team became associated with some sort of tragedy or you know, natural disaster and fell apart, you know, didn't wound up being three and 13 or whatever. I mean, it's always, they reach the finals and I, I just don't believe in coincidences. Yeah. Not when there's billions of dollars at stake. And that's why I find it all really, really suspect. And it it demonstrates also how sports can be used for political purposes as well as propaganda tools in a sense. Oh, true. Well, I mean, right now I don't know. You guys probably don't have it up in Canada, but right now there's a commercial that's airing, um, especially during football. And now we have the whole Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift, you know, connection that everybody's yeah, going on crazy there. mad about. But Taylor or Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey is in an ad, an ad campaign here in the United States where he's advocating people get both their flu shot and their new COVID vaccine at the same time. Weirdo. And I mean, it's just funny. I mean, if all the athletes you could have chosen. It winds up being Travis Kelsey, and now he's tied to Taylor Swift, and now people are, you know, all these Swifty fans are buying everything Travis Kelsey and Kansas City Chiefs related because of Taylor Swift, and now here's, you know, he's suddenly the spokesman for that. That's right. kind of interesting. <laughs> Again, coincidence? Uh, I don't know. Right. Yeah, we picked up on that story here in Canada, too. It's hard to know from here how it's being received in the States. Like, it's is it getting roasted, or is it having some success, that that campaign that they're running? 
I, it's hard to say. Mm. I mean, it really is. I mean, I don't pay a lot of attention to it because I could care less about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. But I, I mean, it's just odd that, you know, suddenly Travis Kelsey's everywhere. You know, he's in, God, he's in like three or four at least different national television commercials for different companies. Okay. Which is bizarre because, I mean, he's a tight end. You know, and I know Gronk had, you know, had a little publicity here as of late too. But I mean, of all the athletes you could choose from, how'd you wind up with that guy? And then how does he get hooked up with Taylor Swift all of a sudden? And suddenly he's like a national thing. I mean, it's strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also, I want to draw attention to your website as well, because not only is it a good place to 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 buy your books, I think you can get signed copies as well through your website. Yes. But you also, you also have a couple pages on your website where you have a lot of good video content where you're showing. When it doesn't get taken down. <laughs> Oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, you always link to the YouTube stuff, and it's like, oh, you know, congratulations. will not allow you to put this on your website anymore. And, okay. Yeah. So you're getting censored. That's a badge of honor. It's, yeah. It means yeah. you're over the target. But the for the videos that are still up, it is um, super interesting to watch because you see that they are, they're messing with the equipment as well, right? Like they're messing with the basketballs, the basketball rims, the footballs. They are. Well, uh, that's. That's one of the real conspiracy things. Right. You know, that's one I don't have the solid proof for, mm-hmm. but there's been a lot of interesting things related to it that makes people wonder. And suddenly the big thing is the magnets. Um, <laughs> yeah. And again, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I mean, it all started for me. I literally had a guy who was a ball boy, former ball boy for the uh, Chicago Bulls. And he told me, he's like, you know, there's magnets inside the basketball. I was like, yeah. what? And he said, yeah, there's magnets inside and the hoops magnetized. And he said, basically, it's supposedly to help control like the shot clock. Um, So like when the ball goes through it, like automatically resets the clock. Yeah. He goes, but just think of it. He goes, if it's a magnet, you know, and it has a magnetic field, you can push and pull the ball in or out of the hoop if you wanted to. I was just like, what? And the more I thought about it, and the more you see some of these shots, you're like, well, maybe that's true. And then you think about it, you know, like the goalposts in the NFL, well, they're giant pieces of metal. The net mm-hmm. in the NHL is a giant piece of metal. Who's mm-hmm. to say there's not a magnet inside the hockey puck and that the you know net frame isn't magnetized and that you could push or pull pucks in or out, you know, mm-hmm. close shots. And the same with the uprights in the NFL. Who's to say you couldn't put them in footballs because there's actually proof you can't put that sort of thing in footballs because they have that um, – it's a product where it's a magnetized football – and you can wear magnetized gloves and you can make catches like Odell Beckham with one hand. And then you start looking at some of these catches now in the NFL, which never happened before. But ever since the Odell Beckham catch, now all of a sudden these guys all over the place are making one-handed catches like it's nothing. Well, if the ball's magnetized and they got magnetized gloves, guess what? They can make those catches all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty wild to watch. And I encourage everybody to go and check out your website and watch these videos because... <laughs> Maybe they're not true, but they're they are uh, they're thought provoking. That's for sure because you can watch um, like there's one in particular where there's an NFL kicker. I forget who it is, and he he hits a he he hits a good kick, and it looks like it's going through the uprights, and then it just veers off to the right out of nowhere, and the camera catches him and his expression. It's like he saw a ghost. He's like, "What the fuck oh, just that's happened a, there?" That's uh, <laughs> Tucker from the Ravens. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a wild clip. And then there's other ones where, like, in an NHL context, 
where a puck is about to go over the goal line and then it does a 90 degree like turn. That's <laughs> miss- the weirdest one ever, I still think. Yeah. And then also within a Canadian context, right? Like the Kawhi Leonard shot. Oh, sus. Right? I was a hooper growing up, man. I never saw a ball act like that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like I say, that's what kind of lends credence to it. And again, mm. I mean, it's it's definitely a conspiracy theory because I would hope I would hope that that's not true. But like you said, you see enough video evidence, and I mean, I know you throw enough balls at the you know baskets, you're going to get all kind of weird bounces and whatever. But some of this stuff, there was just a kick this weekend in the uh, what game was it? It was the Ravens Cardinals game where the field goal looked like it was head right, either to be outside the goalpost or nail the goalpost, and actually like right as it approaches it almost looks like it gets sucked in to being a good kick i mean it's a really bizarre clip i mean it does it with an oblong football it's like how does it make such a curve at the last second like that but there that you see it Mm -hmm. well look sticking with the uh with the theme of uh conspiracy theories i have a theory that um pro athletes some pro athletes might also double as uh spies I don't know if you've come across anything like that before, because there's a li- when you look into it, there's a history of um, actors, right? Celebrities yeah. behaving as in- working for intelligence agencies, right? And being, you know, acting as spies, basically. And I was one, it just occurred to me today, as I was thinking about today's episode, I was like, well, maybe athletes, you know? Well, there was, there's a famous case, right? There's a guy from the, God, what the heck was his name? 1940s. He's a catcher. In Major League Baseball, was named Mo Berg, maybe. Okay, is that what it is? And he was a legit spy, but he was also a baseball player. Amazing. Um, so you're not far off. But I mean, you know, you think about it. Like, how did Dennis Rodman wind up in North Korea? <laughs> Dude, <laughs> right? I was just about to make that joke. I was just about to say, I think the number one sports spy out there right now is Dennis Rodman. But you beat me to it, bro. Yeah. Well, I, but I mean, it never made sense, right? I mean, no. how is that possible? Like, how's it out of all the people that could get into North Korea? How the hell is it Dennis Rodman? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you think about it. I mean, it's not t- totally far fetched because, you know, you have especially like with China and the NBA and the relationship. You know, there's some evidence. Mm-hmm. I won't say evidence, but I mean, there's some you know opportunity there where you have these athletes who have access to things that most normal people don't have access to just because of who they are and yeah why not like mm-hmm. you say if they've done it with celebrities and it's been proven they've done it with celebrities and actors over the years you know athlete isn't a far-fetched idea yeah and since we're we're, we're talking about dennis rodman that makes me think about the chicago bulls and thinking about them makes me think about that documentary that came out a few years ago uh what's it called uh, the, the, last the last dance, dance. yeah the last dance I watched that. I got a real kick out of that. Just listening to to Michael Jordan sit in that chair and just rip all of his teammates to shreds when he felt like it was necessary. And if you go back and you watch that, he's got um, a rock glass on a little side table next to his chair that he's sitting in. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the the level of whiskey or bourbon, whatever he's got in that glass, it's going up and down the whole time, right? And he's all glassy-eyed. <laughs> Right. And he's just shooting from the hip. And I got such a kick out of it. I never appreciated MJ as much as I did after watching that. Really? Because <laughs> I can't stand him. I couldn't watch that. 
I couldn't. Okay, I interesting. Couldn't tune in when everybody was. I just couldn't because he produced it. So it was like anybody who had you know real crap to talk about him. Guess what? They got cut out or not interviewed at all. Oh, that didn't even occur to me, man. I didn't even <laughs> think to look into who produced it. Yeah, he was on the producers. Okay, was, well, it wasn't like it was an independent uh, organization that made this Michael Jordan video. You know, they had that's why they get exclusive access to him because he was involved. Right, right, right. That's so funny. And still, I mean, if you want to talk about Michael Jordan, still, I think, you know, people call it a conspiracy theory, but I know for a fact that his first retirement was 100% bogus, that he was knocked out of the NBA because it was gambling. Okay, yeah. I thought it was baseball. <laughs> well, then he went to play baseball. But yeah, no, he was 100% kicked out for gambling. Well, I shouldn't say kicked out, but asked to step aside as the, all these investigations and stuff were blowing up because they didn't want him going the way of Pete Rose. They couldn't have him go the way of Pete Rose. He meant too much money to too many people. He was, you know, McDonald's and Chevrolet and Nike, and he basically was the NBA. So right. they could not afford to have him blow up like that. And uh, I mean, to this day, the dude's an addicted gambler. Everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why it was such a shock back then, but I mean, he was, he was clearly involved in some bad things with some bad people. He was playing, you know, golf with a known cocaine distributor dealer, you know, and owed him 20, 30, 40, $50,000. Mm. And he was probably on cocaine himself. I love that. It was one of the things at the last dance that maybe just made sure I couldn't watch it was we told that story when it was like his rookie year or something like that. And he said, when I walked into the, you know, this one of the hotel rooms that we had as players and there was players in there and there was cocaine and like strippers or whatever. I just like backed out and wouldn't be participating. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, this is a hundred percent bull. There's no way on God's green earth I'm watching this if that's what you're saying. None. That's hilarious. Nice. Well, you, you, you bring up an interesting theme too, though, that you, that you um, touch on throughout your work, which is the, the relationship between pro sports and organized crime. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, again, the NFL was basically founded by gamblers. A lot of people don't realize that. And the same families, like the Mara family that owns the Giants and has always owned them, their dad was a bookmaker. You know, the Rooney family, which owns the Steelers to this day, the Rooney, uh, Art Rooney was a, again, he was a known gambler bookmaker. The Bidwell family, which owns the Cardinals, so I think they still own the Cardinals. But anyway, they were tied to Al Capone and organized crime in Chicago when they were Chicago Cardinals. I mean, a lot of these people have some really funky backgrounds. These families that have owned teams forever. Right. And, and now they're all in bed with the gambling companies as it is. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's never yeah. been bigger, right? Sports gambling. Yeah. I mean, they just, I mean, who was it? The guy, I don't even remember the player's name. Wasn't the guy from the Senators got suspended for like 40 games for gambling yet, you know, is a bet like 365 sticker on his helmet because they made a deal. The Senators made a deal with the gambling company. I mean, yeah. how hypocritical is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a new story. That's just from last week. Yeah. 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 Super interesting. And then, yeah, because, you know, the more money there is in a given sport, the more, the more gambling there is, the more gambling there is, the more connections they're going to be to organized crime, right? Like it's just the dominoes fall on their own. Well, and the thing about gambling too, is it makes people watch. It makes every right. game more interesting. That's, that's the funny thing is that the league's, fought for the longest time here in the United States to, you know, stop supposedly the spread of sports gambling, but yet they all know that a gambling fan is an interested fan. 
and that you could take the stupidest game, the most lopsided game out there. But if people have money on it, guess what? They're watching to the very end. So I knew as soon as the law got dropped here in the United States, which allowed other states to legalize sports gambling, that the leagues would do a complete 180 and 100% embrace it and try to make money off of it because they know how much it means to them. And they don't care that, you know, all the real broadcasts now have gone from being really about sports to almost being about sports gambling. And that, you know, the pregame shows and the postgame shows and all that, it's all about almost like how does this affect the spread? How does this affect the under over? You know, is he going to play next week? And if he's not going to play next week, how does that affect the spread? That's what they turned it into. They've turned like every home into like a uh, sports book, basically, because you can bet right on your phone and you get all the information right through your television. Oh, man, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it now. Super interesting. You know, it's funny. I try and bring up some of these talking points to people in, in casual conversation, and I get a lot of pushback, man. <laughs> people don't like their their halves being fucked with. You know what I mean? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, I always find it hilarious because, you know, I would talk to somebody who is like, again, I live in Wisconsin, so Green Bay Packer fans. And I could talk to a Packer fan and be like, you know, this about the NBA, that about the NBA, and this about the NBA. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, 100% believe the NBA is rigged and that. You know, they're making bad calls on purpose to protect certain players and help certain teams and blah, blah, blah. And then I'd say, then, you know, in the Packer game, they'd be like, whoa, 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 not the Packers. No, that not that doesn't happen in the NFL. And I'd be like, dude, wake up. It's the same, it's the same thing. It's the same mm -hmm. story, but it's that's what it is, is when you hit that button that personally affects a person when it's their thing, then the story changes 100%. Because you're basically, you know, you're really mentally affecting them. And that's one of the things I started that whole, my first book that takes us in about was about the mental aspect of sports and how people are so, why they're so tied into it and why it's almost like a drug is because it, it mentally benefits them in many ways. They have this thing called basking in reflective glory where, you know, it's a term where if you're into a team, if you're a Chicago Cubs fan and Chicago Cubs win the world series, that, makes you feel physically feel better mentally feel better and that's mm -hmm. why a lot of people say when they call in sports radio and like you know talking about their favorite team like we need to do this and we need to do that we need to make this trade and we need a different coach and dude you're not on the team you're not it's not <laughs> we <laughs> and that's what they noticed is that's how tied in people are to sports and a lot of times when teams are doing real bad they'll start saying they they need to do this they need to do that because now they're disassociating themselves from that team but it's a mental thing. It's a mm -hmm. serious mental thing. And it's almost like I say, it's like a drug and people need yeah. it. And they take it on as part of their identity, mm -hmm. right? So if you start throwing exactly. the board into, into question, then you're questioning their identity as well. We have a thing here called sport ball induced bipolar disorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally yeah, exactly. What else can you name it? Yeah. I forgot about that. That's so true. <laughs> Too funny, man. Um, and you know what's a, another thing that I uh, chat? I forget. I think it's in the fix is still in where you have a chapter on Muhammad Ali, and yeah. I really like that one too. That that one that people don't like that one either though because he's like he's like in the pantheon of of sports gods. You know what I mean? I and people just like they can't imagine. They, well, no, he's the goat. He's the greatest, right? It couldn't couldn't have been a couldn't have been fixed any of his fights. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, he's a complete sham. <laughs> and you know that's 
it, it kind of pains me in a way because like my brother growing up, like Muhammad Ali was like one of his guys. And my dad was always a big boxing fan. And so, you know, I grew up with the whole, I grew up in the seventies when Muhammad Ali was a whole thing. And so, I mean, the, the more I learned about him though, the more I was like, wait a second. I go, this dude was like far from legitimate. And his whole kind of boxing career, not fact, boxing in general, which I think goes to the UFC as well, is far from legitimate all the way through. And so the more I researched the Muhammad Ali thing, the more I was like, you know, this every time the guy won the heavyweight title was like a fixed fight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once you start realizing that, you're like, whoa. But you're right. He's a guy, he's like Michael Jordan. He's like somehow untouchable. And to say that to people, to say that like, you know, oh, you know, Muhammad Ali's the greatest. And you say, well, no, he's not. Because all those fights were fixed, you, they, they just like flip out. You know, it's like saying somebody's God isn't real. I mean, it's it really gets to people. But again, it's because they're unwilling to look at something critically and objectively mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they've bought into it. They've bought into the lie and they've been fed and sold the lie for so long. You know, it's like telling little kids Santa Claus doesn't exist. It's like, what? What, what do you mean? <laughs> Who brings those presents? Where do they come from? If it's not Santa Claus. What, what about Mike Tyson? Tyson's the same thing. I mean, there's no, like one guy explained it to me. I interviewed this guy. His name's Charles Farrell. And he is, he was a boxing manager for a long time. He managed, I think it was something like five world champions during the course of his career. And he literally told me he's fixed hundreds of fights, mm. hundreds of fights. He doesn't even know how many he fixed. And basically, he says, this happens all over the place. He's not alone. And this is the way boxing has existed for 100 years. And I'm sure it's the same way the UFC exists or mixed martial arts, whatever. It's basically, he said, when you have a fighter, you can tell if you've been in it long enough, you can tell a fighter pretty quick whether the guy really has it or they don't. Mm. And if you have somebody who really has it, somebody like Mike Tyson, you don't want to put that guy in real fights. Because you don't want him getting beat up. Because even if he's fighting some pug, he's still going to get hit in the head and get in the head repeatedly and, you know, potentially damaged, injured, what have you. So what you do as a good manager, this isn't like a bad manager, this is a good manager. You protect that guy as long as you can. So that's why so often when you see like whatever the heavyweight championship fight between two guys, you know, there's the title holder and then there's the challenger. The challenger will be like 22-0 and with 20 knockouts. Well, chances are like all those knockouts were fixed fights. Right. Because that's what he would do as a manager. He would call somebody and say, Hey, look, my guy needs to get like three or four rounds of work. You got somebody. And the other manager would have a pug who Palooka, who's never going to make it be like, yeah, I got somebody to give you three or four rounds. And then they would set up this fight. It would make the potential contender look good. The other guy would get paid and still be a professional boxer. And he'd knock him out quote unquote in three rounds and everything's good. And that's how you built up a guy's career. And then when he did get the title fight, it probably was a legitimate fight, but that might've been the first or second real fight this guy's ever had. Because again, you were protecting them all the way. And that's the same, like I say with UFC. I mean, how many times you see so many guys get their heads kicked in. You can't have fight after fight of getting your head kicked in. (laughs) Your Mm -hmm. career's going to last, you know, six months. Mm -hmm. So you got to protect them. Yeah. Uh, it makes all it's just good business practice exactly yeah. and it's good for the fighter i mean it's you know you're protecting them you know you're saving them you know to a degree you know potential injury and you know a quick retirement yeah 
There's a uh, sticking with Tyson in uh, one of your books. I think it's the fix is still in where you're talking about, you give a whole bunch of examples of sporting competitions where the fans felt uh, like they got robbed. And one of them was the, the Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield fight in 97 because it, it ended in such controversy. And in the book, you mentioned there was some fan who wanted to sue the promoter or something. I forget what exactly. Don King? <laughs> must have been. Don, Don King must have I think have it was Don King, yeah. Yeah, had to have been, right? You can't, you can't really sue Don King. He might curb stop you to death like he did somebody else in the past. That's right. That's a bad <laughs> dude, man. That's a bad yeah. dude. You don't untangle with him. He's the king. Yeah. But I, I was inspired by that story, though, because the title of the fight was The Sound and the Fury. And I just thought that's too coincidental that there's a, tight, a, title, uh, a title fight titled The Sound and the Fury. And in that fight, one boxer bites off the ear of another. So my conspiracy theory is that, that, was, that the ear bite was scripted. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully, Evander Holyfield did not script to have his own ear bitten off in the ring. But well, he doesn't have to be in on it. Only Tyson has to be in. Well, on that's it. true. That's a good point. Yeah, it's just yeah. a fake ear, man. It's a fake ear. Good one. <laughs> it goes even deeper, bro. Yeah, he actually lost his ear like ten years ago on a you know, <laughs> steak one, cutting accident. And... <laughs> but no, it's funny that fans, and that also goes to the show that all these sporting events can be manipulated and legally done. So is because fans have no recourse. You know, like you said, I show numerous evidence in the book of the numerous times where fans have attempted to sue a sports league or a team because of a result or because of this, that, the other thing. And they lose every time they never win because mm -hmm. like the one jets fan who sued the Patriots over Spygate, the court said, look, your ticket just grants you the license to see uh, basically a football game in that case. You know, the NFL just has to play a football game and they've basically fulfilled their obligation to use the ticket purchaser. It doesn't mean certain rules have to be followed. doesn't mean certain players have to play. They just have to put on a football game as opposed to like a basketball game and they fulfill their duty. So it's not even fraud because I've had, I had an FBI agent kind of argue with me while well, these leagues were fixing their own games. It'd be fraud. I'm like, how is it fraud? if this is true. And he was like, well, yeah, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that's true. I'm like, okay, then it's not even really fraudulent activity because they're still putting on a football game. They're still putting on basketball games. It's up to you as the viewer to determine whether you think they're real or not. That's the thing. If you're lying to yourself, they can't help that. Yeah. That's an admission, right? Admission to the lie. Yeah. Oh, good one. Yeah. And admission to lie. It's no different than buying a ticket to, to watch the Globetrotters versus the Washington Generals. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, or like you said, or like uh, professional wrestling. Yeah. You know, Hulk Hogan didn't win every match. A lot of people wanted him to. You know, Ric Flair, sometimes they lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned... And that's, and that's the funny thing, too, with the NBA right now. You know, they have that load management thing, but they can't have, you know, the players taking off primetime, you know, TNT national broadcast games. <laughs> you got to, you know, determine where their load management is. Cause who was it? They got in trouble a couple of years ago. Was it the Spurs or Rockets? One of the Texas teams that benched a couple of their star players and it was supposed to be a marquee matchup because they were quote unquote tired. And the league just like completely flipped out on them. It's like, how can you not have these guys playing on that night? Yeah. I remember that. It was tired. Yeah. I remember that. It was the Spurs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was Popovich, right? 
That's it. Yeah. Uh, well, look, you mentioned earlier, you mentioned Taylor Swift, and I thought, you know, that might be an opportunity to segue into talking about transgender athletes in sport. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on, on, on this latest phenomenon of, of transgender, transgenderism in, in, in sports? Myself, I, I cannot understand how they allow it. Hmm. I, I just can't. I mean, if, you know, a guy's a guy and you can, you know, watch some of these races in physical contests where, you know, they just dominate over the women. And I feel bad for the women because women have fought so hard to get their own like little slice of the sporting pie. And mm -hmm. now it's like you get all these guys who like can't cut it against other guys and just say, oh, if I grow my hair long, I can just smoke these women and I can be the champion. It's like, come on. Well, they can cut it. There are ways. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. But I just, I don't, I don't understand how there's not a bigger pushback against it. I, I, cause I mean, yeah. what are the Olympics going to do? I mean, right. what are the Olympics really going to do? I mean, are you really going to, I mean, cause he, everybody knows if you just opened it up and said, okay, we're going to get rid of men's and women's sports and we're just going to have sports, you know, we're just going to have track and field and it's, you know, hundred meter dash and whoever's the fastest gets in. There's not a woman in that race. Then there's not a woman in the high jump. There's not a woman in any of those competitions. There's not That's one. It. That's it. So I, I, you have to have women's sports. And so by having women's sports, it means you have to keep men out of it. It's that simple. I don't care what they think they are. It's what they are. Right. And it only goes one way too, right? You don't have women um, um, competing in men's sports, right? There, there is no competition there, right? Like, no, I, I mean, I think if they would, if they could, Sure. But they just can't. And it's nothing against them. I mean, most of those women athletes could definitely beat me in any sport. But, you know, when you get to the elite, there's clearly a difference, a huge that's difference. It. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fascinating topic. Um, very, very political. Emotions get charged. But uh, we're trying to keep it like that's for sure. There is I can think <laughs> there is one example, though, of in MMA of a oh, i gotta get this right now it was a male who transitioned to female and he she now she insisted on continuing to fight men anyway and so she is on record saying like yeah i'm a female now but really i'm still a man and i'm gonna fight men and she actually fought a man and beat him this was in brazil but that, that's a very rare story. Yeah, and, and same thing. That That's fair enough. <laughs> Good. Right. You know, in right. that case, fine. Are you not entertained? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's tennis. <laughs> hey, tennis and transgenderism. What's up with that, Beach? Oh, yeah, it's kind of weird. And the rules, they allow it, right? A certain amount of the hormone inside. It's in the rule book, right? Yeah. Hmm. Is it really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It's in there. I haven't read the tennis rules. I don't care enough about tennis to. <laughs> oh, God. it's a treasure trove, man. <laughs> Deep tunnels. Well, tennis, you know, is one of the most corrupt sports in the world. I oh. can believe that. I can believe yeah. that, and I, I think there's a maybe a link in Florida. I find Florida a little weird spot for for all that kind of stuff, from baseball to tennis. You know, it's a, it's a, like a haven for like these elite athletes and academies. What do you think? I never really looked into it that far. 
Ah. I just look at it from the gambling perspective of how, you know, I love how they have this tennis integrity unit, the TIU, that's supposedly saving the sport. And yet at the same time, they always catch somebody who's ranked like, you know, 648th in the world of, you know, fixing a match. <laughs> it's like, right. yeah. <laughs> Ooh, good job, guys. Way to go after it. You know, well, why don't you look at the guy who's ranked 15th and, you know, had all these unforced errors in a match? You know, why don't you look at that? No, they sanction it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the scary thing with tennis is one of the reasons why it is so corrupt. And it's nothing new. I mean, there's a book by, what's his name? I think it's Michael Mushaw called Short Circuit from like the early 80s, where he talks about these guys were openly, guys and women, were openly fixing matches and dropping games. Because the money, I mean, you know, to if you're not like in the top 10, top 20 tennis players in the world, you don't make any money. And it's hard to go from tournament to tournament with no money unless you're rich to begin with. So what happens is it's, you know, more lucrative to work with gamblers or even work with yourself and, you know, somebody, you know, a cousin or whatever and say, look, I'm because you can bet. So individually in tennis, you can bet on single you know, not just the match, but on the set, on the game, on actually even individual points. But it's so easy to go, look, I'll lose the second set or a second game of the second set. It doesn't mean I have to lose the match, but I'm going to make sure I lose that set and I'm going to bet against myself or some gambler is going to bet against me. And we can make 10 grand doing that, which is more than I'm going to make this, even if I win this tournament. Just so don't why get wouldn't caught. you do that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't get caught. Don't make it obvious or blatant that you're doing it at least in the gambling circles, you can look terrible on the court, but you know, it's that easy. Mm. Yeah. Sticking with tennis, I was thinking about uh, Novak Djokovic. I don't know if you have any thoughts on him, Brian, because in the last few years, he was like, he was a hero to a lot of people because he resisted the, the COVID tyranny. Right. Yeah, and, I know. You know, and then managed to win. I think it was the Aussie open with uh, what's his face in attendance there. Uh, Dr. Gil Bates. And, but then at the same time, if you just do a, like a Google image shirt, uh, search of Djokovic, tons of photos will come up of him throwing up. Okay. Signs like triple six, where he's shushing people where he's covering one eye or he's throwing up triangles like LeBron James. And so I'm wondering, is he really this counterculture hero or is he, you know, controlled opposition? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Brian. No, I've never really thought about it. But didn't they, wasn't he the one that he was like flying, like while he was like literally in the air going to that tournament that they changed the like rules or the like COVID vaccination thing yep. on him? <laughs> I mean, so it makes me kind of think that he's not exactly um, like a counter agent to it all. <laughs> it seems mm. like they literally legitimately were screwing with that guy mm. just because. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it is an interesting situation that he was like one of the few who is really steadfast and saying, "No, I'm not doing this. You can't force me to." But then again, he could afford to. What happened to Kyrie? So, you know anything about that? No, nah, it's a good question. What did they actually? I mean, he's kind of disappeared off the radar as it was since then, hasn't he? Yeah, he's talked about flat Earth and uh, and it was uh, anti-vax for a while. So yeah. Yeah. Is he is he still playing though? Is he still in the league? Yeah, I think so, isn't he? I mean, because yeah. he was he missed like half the games that one year, didn't he? Because he would he only play home games or whatever it was. Yeah. Or he couldn't play home games, he could only travel. I forgot how it went. 
Oh, that's yeah, all that we, was it. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't play in Brooklyn. Let's all forget about it. <laughs> yeah, it's more important things to think about. Right? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Nothing ever happened. Oh, man. So, dude, Brian, before we let you go, though, man, I want to hear about disaster government, national emergencies, continuity of government, and you. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a big book. It's kind of a big subject matter. You know, the funny thing about that book was is I – after I wrote the fixes in, I actually started working on that while I was getting all these FBI files. And I got a lot of stuff through the Freedom Information Act for this disaster government book as well. But I was always intrigued by like uh, what they call them, dumbs, the deep underground military bases and stuff oh, like yes. that. Mm -hmm. And whether, you know, the government actually had plans to like, you know, basically become a dictatorship in the event of, you know, certain disasters. And the more I researched that book, the more I released all that supposed conspiracy stuff is a hundred percent true hundred percent true My <laughs> and, it's, and it's really not a conspiracy theory it's like if you actually read it and in my book i tried to put as much of the real documents so you could read it for yourself you know not just because a lot of times it felt like people were just cherry picking things when they talk about you know oh, the government could take over the you know the national media and broadcast wherever they want and they it's it seemed like they're just cherry picking lines but when you actually read like the laws and the, you know, presidential orders that we released and all that. It was like, oh, my God, this stuff is 100% true. They're not making so, any of it up. So you went in to debunk it. And not necessarily it. debunk it, but just to look at it with more of a critical eye, I guess. Mm. Gotcha. Okay. But it was kind of mind-blowing. And it's really interesting, too, because one of the things that I talked about in that book before the pandemic, because I wrote that in, again, it was probably around 2013-ish was um pandemics and um quarantining people because the government had the united states government had legit plans to do that and plans in place for that if something like covid supposedly happened and yet all the plans that i had researched and uncovered and found they completely 100 ignored and did something completely opposite of what they had planned when covid broke out which I just found bizarre. Mm -hmm. Amazing, man. Well, look, you just talked me into buying that book. I am super intrigued <laughs> out, man. And, I mean, uh, it's a little, the only thing I think I did wrong with that book is it's a little dry. And I think it's mainly because I did quote so heavily from the actual like government files and laws and that sort of thing. But again, I did that because I wanted to show people that I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> this is really what is written there. And I think, again, it's not written in like some legalese that you can't understand, but it's just, it's kind of mind boggling the plans the United States government has in place to combat what they call national emergencies. And the fact that, I mean, at the time when I wrote the book, we were under operating under like 25 different national emergencies, all that were ongoing at the same time. It was like, well, theoretically, the government can take control of everything anytime it wants because all these national emergencies, quote unquote, are actually going on right now. So they just keep like uh, what renewing them or yeah, how does that because they passed a law in the seventies Congress because there was so many there's only like four national emergencies going on and Congress realized oh this is stupid you know we're gonna pass a law that'll end them all and it did and now what's happened is like nine eleven which was what now 22 years ago, 23 years ago, 22 years mm -hmm. ago, 
is still a national emergency in the United States. To this because day. It, yeah, because it keeps getting renewed every year. Right. Which is ridiculous because it clearly was a one-day thing. <laughs> it shouldn't be a national emergency anymore, but yet here we are. It's 2023, still a national emergency. Do you have any other examples? Do you have any other examples of of ongoing national emergencies? Uh, you know, I haven't I, really. After I wrote the book, and for a year or so, I haven't looked at it. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I haven't really looked at it in eight years, probably. So it's hard okay. to say. But most of them, I mean, it wouldn't matter who was president. You know, it wasn't like the Republicans would do it, and then the Democrats would end up the Republican ones and like create their own. It didn't matter who the president was; they would just keep renewing them. And basically the whole, I think the whole idea is, is that if certain things are occurring under a national emergency, like the war against terrorism is occurring under a national emergency, then they actually have an unlimited budget to fight it because right. it's quote, an emergency. So that's mm -hmm. why they keep rolling it. So they can have, you know, a trillion dollar defense fund um, because we're under a national emergency, you don't have to be under any sort of budget or any sort of guidelines. You can just spend money, you know, willy nilly because, oh, my God, we're, quote, in an emergency. Right. So it's a scam. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Just a mm -hmm. government scam. And, and so when you say that it doesn't really matter who's in office and that these emergencies just get rolled for, forward one um, one administration after another, is that what you mean by continuity of government or is that something else? No, continuity government were um, basically plans developed really starting almost after World War II for the government to continue operating um, in the event of, quote, an emergency, but mainly in the event of almost like a nuclear war. Ah. So as to continue to have the government, no matter the circumstances here in the United States. And so that's why they actually started building all these underground bases was basically to spirit all of Congress and the president and all the bigwigs like out of Washington. And DC into these bunkers so they could continue holding government and have control over not just the army, but the whole country should something major like that ever take place. Okay. What's that? There's a whole network I hear underneath connected. Well, well, that's the whole, that's where you get into the conspiracy thing. So, I mean, a lot of people say, well, that's impossible. There couldn't be like, you know, a network of these underground tunnels going through the whole United States. But, you know, there's like, I, one of the things I found, that I can remember at least was back in the, I think it was like Jimmy Carter administration. So the late seventies, they had created a plan where they were going to have nuclear weapons stashed like kind of all over the Southwest United States connected by underground tunnels, almost like, um, like prairie dogs all throughout the uh, Southeast United States in the desert and have these missiles like randomly like whack-a-mole pop up in these different silos randomly so they could never be targeted by the russians because they're always on the move and on the go and it wasn't that we didn't have the technology or anything to do it they just didn't want to spend all the money to do it so at the same time when people say you know well we don't have these underground railroads i'm like well i, I they they could definitely have them it's just a question mm -hmm. whether or not they built them and use them but they definitely could have them i mean the technology is definitely there because they had it the technology in the 70s to do this Oh, here in Canada, we have um, a, a Deethan bunker, which is like a play on words with uh, Deethan Baker, a former prime minister uh, of Canada, and uh, it's available. You can go on a, as a tourist and go in this underground base. It's kind of creepy. 
Yeah, it's out in the open. You can pay to go and tour it. <laughs> well, then there's one in the United States, too, under the Greenbrier Resort, um, which is in Virginia, I think. And that was one of the original ones that was going to house Congress in the event of a nuclear war. Ah. But it's been decommissioned. So there's other ones out there. It's just a question of where they are and you know, mm-hmm. who has access to them. But mm-hmm. yeah, they definitely exist. There's no oh, doubt about that. I mean, my, I had an uncle... Yeah, I don't know if he's, he was a relative. I don't we called him an uncle, but I don't think he really was my uncle. But anyway, he was the head of the um, Yucca Mountain Project out in Nevada, where they were going to store all the nuclear waste um, in the country, supposedly, under this big granite mountain out in the Nevada desert. And he was in charge of the whole thing. And I mean, it was completely underground and it was high tech and crazy because my mom actually got to tour it. Um, there's a visitor, but they never opened it because the too many states had problems with nuclear waste being transported by rail um, to it. So they spent all this money, built this huge place to store all this nuclear waste, and they uh, they never used it. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe it wasn't a mistake. Hmm. Oh, good one, Beach. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you mentioned uh, towards the beginning of of this episode, Brian, you mentioned uh, the con- the ongoing uh, madness in in Israel and Palestine right now, and I was just taking in some some wartime propaganda the other day, where there were various uh, clips on Twitter where they were showing um, this vast and sophisticated underground tunnel network that the Palestinians have, and this is why they're a real threat to the state of Israel. Blah blah blah. And I was, I'm watching it, thinking, okay, so. You're, you're telling us that the Palestinians have these this underground network, but the U.S. government or the U.S. military doesn't? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just like the drug runners, you know, Mexico and the United States have all these underground tunnels, too. But same thing, oh, yeah. Yeah. The yeah, government exactly. doesn't have it. Exactly. Weird. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so what's it like? We are... We, we definitely pay attention to American culture and American politics, right? I mean, how, how could we not? Well, it's entertaining. It's entertaining, right? And connected to what's going on in the Middle East right now, like, are, are they starting to bang the war drums in the U.S. at all? Or am I just imagining that? Uh, kind of, yeah. I would yeah. say, yeah. I mean, I to be honest, I try not to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. because you know i've learned as i've gotten older i i have zero control over it you know right. i none and so you know if i think the president's doing something insane or congress is doing it what am i gonna do and i mean i know that sounds like a defeatist attitude but at a certain point in time especially i mean i'm 50 years old i've seen enough heard enough where it's like you know they're just gonna do what they want to do anyway mm-hmm. and we're just pawns to them and they don't care Right. And so I, you know, I can fight back in my little ways, but, you know, can I stop? I mean, I guess if you get enough people like me, can you stop a war? Sure, maybe. But, you know, for the most part, there's too many people who are, you know, sheep. (laughs) We'll just follow along because, you know, their president or their party says, let's do this. So this is what we'll do regardless of good, bad or indifferent idea. And but, yeah, it does seem like they are kind of like, hey, let's go to war. This should be good time. I find it insane. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Like the sheeple are, and they're, they're distracted by sport. They're not even really, if only they did a deep dive on politics, they, the way they did a deep dive on their favorite team or their favorite sport. Oh my God. 
Well, that's one of the things I've brought up to people before. It's like, you know, I can remember, <laughs> stupid, but I mean, I can remember like the starting lineup of the 1984 Cubs. Right. But I'm not 100% sure of the name of my representative in the Congress. Right. And that's pretty sad. And there's a lot of people, like you say, name like one senator from your state. I don't know, but, you know, name the starting five of the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, well, we got Giannis. We got, you know, they could mm-hmm. do it no problem. And that's exactly how it works. If, you know, people paid attention to politics for lack of a better term, then maybe things would actually change. But like you say, I mean, there's so much bad news. Everybody just wants to escape out of it. And I don't, I don't blame them for it. Mm-hmm. It's not great for everybody, but I don't blame them. Yeah. It's the modern day uh, bread and circuses. Yeah. So yeah, it worked for the Romans. It works for people now. Uh, yeah. And uh, the U S is the new Rome anyway. Right. Yeah. Right on. Well, I think that's a good way to round out our conversation. It's been a blast talking to you, Brian, and we definitely like to have you back on. Maybe, maybe I'm going to get that disaster government book and I'll read through that. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about that next time. We can try. I, it's been a while since I've wrote it. So I don't know how much I remember. <laughs> I'll do all the heavy lifting. Don't worry. That's good. Yeah, that's good. I could just be like, yeah, you're right. That's what I wrote. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. I think I wrote that. <laughs> well look before um before we let you go man maybe just like remind our listeners where they can find you and maybe uh maybe there's something you can tease something that you're working on maybe uh actually right now i'm not i have a couple ideas for books but nothing that i'm working on i'm kind of almost done with sports okay because i you can only say so much you know how many times can i you know say the same thing i've been doing it i mean the fixes in came out in 2010 and i started my website which is People can find me on my website, which is thefixesin.net. And it has, like you say, books for sale. And it has all my social media links and all that there. And if people want to email me, they could do it through thefixesin.net. But I started that website even before the books. I mean, I've been doing this for like 15, 16, 17 years. I don't even know exactly anymore. And after a while, you know, how many times can you say, look, this stuff isn't legitimate? You know, and how many examples can you show people? It's like, you know, if they can't figure it out by now, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just think so. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, to write another book about sports seems kind of, you know, just redundant. It's like, right. I, I think I've kind of said everything that needs to be said. And unfortunately, you know, sports scandals, they never stop. Right. And that's one thing, you know, that kind of boggles my mind is, you know, people think, you know, oh, ESPN such a great outlet for sports. Well, in a way it is. But like you said earlier, for investigative stuff, it's non-existent. Because mm-hmm. the only thing, the only time ESPN talks about a scandal is if, you know, some either governing body or law enforcement uncovers it. It's not like ESPN's uncovering scandal after scandal. You know, right. they're reporting on somebody, oh, you know, I think his knee is broke, you know, or he blew out his Achilles. Oh, wow, what a mm-hmm. scoop. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's like I can only do so much on sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, you so, know what you just re- you just reminded me though, Brian, I was thinking about it today. I have an idea for your next sports book and it's a little bit off the wall. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But it's a little bit off the wall, right? Instead of covering sports themselves, do a book where you analyze sports films, Hollywood sports films, right? Like Friday night lights, like Rudy and the list goes on and on, right? That could be a dope book, Brian. And it could be something we could do on a podcast too, right? We'll just pick a movie and we'll do an analysis of it. She's selling something. Bro, bro, I'm inspired. 
<laughs> We'd have to start with Hoosiers, though. That was always my dad's favorite. Hoosiers. Oh, nice. That that would be a great one, man. Yeah. Or actually, Rocky. You know, the funny thing is, which I didn't even realize, in Rocky 3, I think it's Rocky 3. Rocky 3. It's actually alluded to, and I never noticed it until I just happened to see it a little while ago. But in Rocky 3, Mickey basically tells Rocky that he was fixing fights for him. No way. Yeah. It's oh, early on. He, he tells him that he basically set up a bunch of fights to make sure that Rocky continued to be the title. Oh, they tell us. <laughs> they always tell us in the movies, man. You could yeah. do. You could write a whole book just on the Rocky franchise, probably, and the, and the Creed spinoff. That's a whole book yeah. right there. Could be, yeah. Nice. Well, look, we'll let you go, man. But thanks so much for coming on, Brian. It's been no a problem. pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's stay in touch, and hopefully we can have you back on again in the future. Yeah, anytime you want me back. I'm not doing much. Got free time. Right on, man. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and uh, we'll be in touch. You're an inspiration, dude. I appreciate it. You guys have a good night. <laughs>